Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Alex Fine, founder of Dame Products. Dame is the home of phenomenally fun toys for adults that helps people upgrade their self-care with toys for sex. They were also named one of the most innovative wellness companies in 2020 by Fast Company. We touch on a lot of areas in both sexual wellness and femtech that have been traditionally heavily stigmatized and her journey guiding Dame to amazing heights. Without further ado, here's Alex. Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? I am super excited to talk to you because what you're building with Dame in the sexual wellness space, I haven't had anybody on the show that's building this space. So I'm absolutely thrilled to talk to you about Dame. This is gonna be really fun. So let's start at the beginning. What attracted you to entrepreneurship and sex therapy? I think, you know, a curiosity, like this determinism, there's just certain things about my personality that I feel like really, that was like almost the same fire within me that attracted me to both of these things. Like I'm very curious. I wanna know answers. I wanna see if I can do it. And, you know, (laughs) I think for both categories, you know, talking about sex and doing things on my own and creating something on my own, like there was some similarities there. But just to take them one at a time, sex therapy, I was really driven to the conversation around sex and sex therapy from actually a, a pretty early age. One of my favorite stories to tell is when I was six, my aunt brought me to a party that had um, drag queens and some transgender folk and I was super amazed and I was six and got to ask him all of these the questions that any a lot of people have but you can ask them so authentically when you're young without any judgment like are you a boy are you a girl what, what does that mean and I got all these wonderful answers I also learned how to strut my stuff and how to walk the catwalk and actually like embody femininity in a really like cool way and I went back to first grade show and tell and I explained to my class the difference between being a drag queen and actually at the time I had learned the word transsexual and this caused issues in that you know called the principal office. They called my parents. My parents were upset with my aunt. And this whole time that I was essentially getting in trouble, nobody was able to tell me why. I didn't hurt anybody's feelings. I didn't lie. All I did was talk about truth. And in fact, it felt like a really important conversation to me. Like my mind had been blown. And that curiosity, those whys, why can't I do this? Why can't we talk about this with no good answers is just unleash something in me where I just wanted to talk about gender identity and relationships and sex. And I often wasn't met with great answers and just a a hush, don't talk about that, don't talk about that. And that just didn't work for me. I was like, why, 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 why? So I think that that kind of put me on the path towards really being interested in sexuality, sexual identity, gender identity, And, um, you know, I just have always felt like interpersonal relationships and sex are one of the most important parts of the human experience, yet we do so little to educate, to understand, to train ourselves, to be good at them. And I was just wanted to bring value to the world in that space. And then lastly, sexism, right? Like, 
I kissed a boy, my first kiss, that boy got high fives and I got dirty looks. And I was like, wait, what I just did was just as cool as what he did. I'm positive. Like we just did the same thing, you know, like what's going on here? Why am I being treated differently? Why am I being made to feel badly about exploring my pleasure and my curiosity when something I just did felt really good for me? So that all of that kind of led me down that path and that interest. And I just, I love talking about it. And then I think entrepreneurialism was really similar. Like I just want to be me. I want to make an impact in the world. I want to have conversations. I just... you don't want to break shit and remake it. And I think that that is kind of that entrepreneurial spirit. It's like, I can do it differently. I can do that. And yeah, so I was really attracted to it. My family was very encouraging of it. My dad in particular, which I think is really, really special. And I was also lucky enough to work at a three-person consumer goods startup and see how people do it. So that's kind of what led me to entrepreneurialism. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing. And I love this kind of collision where your interest in sex therapy, as well as entrepreneurship, it's all kind of based upon this curiosity that really started when you were six on your journey, which I find fascinating. And as well as maybe when you're thinking about pain points and solving pain points, it's it's also emotion, right? It's women that people aren't comfortable maybe talking about their experience or comfortable opening up it's more like come from like as you experience maybe when you kissed a boy like a a place from judgment rather than a place from actually opening your arms and really helping share that with the world i think that's really inspiring that's really cool so what was the insight that led to founding dame or few but i think the the biggest insight i had that led me to start dame was that 80% of my community was using a vibrator. I also knew from from my research that over 70 to some research even says 80% of people with vulvas experience orgasms exclusively from clitoral stimulation. Yet, so there was like those things I knew, yet the products were being marketed like they were illegal, like they were being marketed like they were not mainstream and embarrassing. Like, shh, don't tell anybody you just bought this powerful vibrator. And also almost all of the products were internal products really designed for internal stimulation over external stimulation. So you had this, I knew that there was a misalignment in product fit and a misalignment in in how we were marketing and talking about these products. That convinced me that I could do something in this category that was different. I could make products that were better and connect to consumers in a deeper way. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I totally understand in terms of the perception of sexual products about, you know, maybe going into a sex shop and it's, you know, deemed as like a gag gift or like, you know, like kind of like a joke gift where actually this can really, really make people feel a heck of a lot better and more empowered. And so I totally understand that from that fan's point, especially what you're doing on focusing on that. So how did you start creating vibrators? So I had a bunch of product ideas and one of them that I thought was particularly unique ended up being the first product that we launched. It's called Eva. It's a hands-free clitoral vibrator that's worn in between the labia on top of the clitoris and you can wear it hands-free. So you can wear it during intercourse or penetrative P in the V or dildo in the V sex. And I knew that that was like a very, there was another insight there, which is I knew a bunch of people that were buying clitoral vibrating like cock rings for clitoral stimulation, they weren't getting it from the product. So I was like, oh, this is a really great 
product concept. I wonder if I can make it work. The first thing I did was I took a half dollar coin, I wrapped it in some cellophane, and I might be a little TMI, but I put it in between my labia. It stayed in place. And you know, it does not work the way the product works, but it was just enough of validation, of product concept validation to get me to take the next step, which was I started taking other vibrators. I was taking them apart. I went to an art supply store. I bought multiple plastic and I started molding shapes around pancake motors that I would literally just pull out of other vibrators. And I was able to make by hand vibrators that essentially worked mostly like and looked like the end product. And I had friends come over and try out my handmade vibrators to see if they stayed in place. And I have really amazing friends. It was also the beginning of like community and realizing how important community was going to be to develop these products under understand what people are really looking for and to to make it right because we're all shaped differently we all experience pleasure differently so that's how I started making them eventually I took like some 3d printing classes I joined a makerspace I learned how to solder and then I was lucky enough to meet my co-founder and then even though I had spent like literally five months learning how to do all of this in like one week she made the product better than I <laughs> I was able to make it by you know doing it on my own so like I both patented myself on the back for learning all of that and also know that experts are better at it than me. That's awesome. I'm sure that's the sign of a very good co-founder right there. Yeah. And especially when you talk about complementary skills. So that's fantastic. When you were having your friends test the product, was there any hesitancy to sample or were they quite open? I'd say, you know, my group of friends were, you know, varying degrees of how of how comfortable they felt. I had some friends who were willing to show me how the product was fitting. Like, you know, if, look, if you're making anything, watching people interact with the product so you can understand, oh, are they pressing this button correctly? You know, can they figure out how to use it without instructions? Like watching people interact with it and getting that data from firsthand experience is obviously the best data. I had a lot of friends who were totally willing to do that. I had some friends who took the product home and just explained what was working and what wasn't working. And now most of the way we do our research is kind of through that ladder. So I'll send you a prototype with a big questionnaire and you'll try the prototype out. You'll answer a ton of questions. You'll think, oh, testing a vibrator, how fun. And then on question number like 50, you're like, I'm never doing this again, probably. (laughs) But yeah, it is super fun. We're always looking for more people to try and you can sign up on our website to be a tester. That's awesome. That's awesome. So when did you realize hey, this could actually be a real business or there's some traction here that maybe I should, you know, think about. I know you're talking about learning about soldering, but would love to just learn more about that kind of process of when you really thought this is something that I could quit my job and really begin. Yeah. So I think there is like a few different aha moments for me. I did research on other companies and other like-minded products. Um, And I remember discovering that there was another company out there that was also doing couples focused vibrators and that they had in, I think, six or seven years, got up to $35, $40 million in revenue. I was able to just through basic Google searches, learn a little bit about some of the revenue figures that other brands were pulling in. And that was like, okay, this is a business, right? Like there are companies in this category that make hundreds of thousands of dollars annually. So that was definitely like, oh, this is a 
real market, which I also knew because over half of the women in the U.S. have used a vibrator. So, like, obviously they're buying them from somewhere. And I was also kind of going back to, like, that validation of, like, we act like this isn't mainstream, but the majority of people use these toys. So, you know, there was that. I would say another aha moment was, like, the first time I tried it during partnered sex and, and it worked. I remember it working very well and me, (laughs) you know, climaxing and thinking, I'm going to be rich. Like, this is going to be amazing. It was definitely one of my best sexual experiences. (laughs) And it was really funny. And I remember my now husband got a real kick out of it. But really, like, I I think when we launched our Indiegogo campaign, the the actual just traction we got was, I mean, I cried. You think you're going to sell well, right? That's why you're doing it. But then you like set goals that you also think are reasonable. And then to have people like real people who don't know you show up and, and say, I think this product concept is so smart. And I, trust these people who are trying to sell it so much that I'm going to give you money before you've made it so you can go and make it. And we had six over 6,000 people show up to do that. We raised over $575,000. And, you know, my <laughs> our Indiegogo goal was 50K. My personal goal was like 150K. Like I knew I wanted to do more. And then to do 575, I mean, I literally just like, I had a few nights where I just sat there and cried. Like it was yeah. That's unbelievable. I know that the goal was 50K. If you hit 50K, I know obviously you're also Google searching and understanding that this is a real market as well as talking with other people that it's a market. But was there maybe like a minimum that you needed to hit on Indiegogo for you to really consider it? So, yeah, I mean, we knew that at 50K, we were going, to be honest, we had put money down for tooling. We were going for it. We were pretty committed to this concept beforehand and also just timing wise in order to try and like, you know, do it. I was convinced that, you know, based on my research of the market and, you know, the team that, you know, was just me and my co-founder at that time, like we could do it. Very confident, a very confident 26 year old. And I I knew that though, if we didn't hit 50K, there might be some like backtracking, like it would be really hard for us to actually make the product. In fact, you know, we really felt like we needed 150K or I think it was like 105K actually to just like make the amount that we wanted to make, which was 5,000 units. But I was also confident too, that if we could just get enough traction, we could find money elsewhere. Like there would be people, it's like shadow testing, you know, people would say, oh, there's like a real demand here. And then we ended up doing so well that we decided not, we didn't need any money. So that was good, bad, you know, lots of decisions that maybe I would have done a little differently. That's really interesting. I was also curious, like, how did you approach marketing and your brand at the early stages? Because I know that you also have this mission of, you know, destigmatizing sexual wellness. And I would just love to know how you incorporate that into your brand as well. Sure. You know, from day one, we knew that this was a a wellness and a health product. Not like you mentioned, a novelty or joke or, I don't know, CD product. And we were very big on like in order to destigmatize, you don't say, hey, it's destigmatized or we're destigmatizing. You show people that it's destigmatized. So what we would do is we would just be very frank, transparent, 
and playful in our branding. You know, it's often about making people feel comfortable, but also simultaneously speaking truth. So I remember, you know, first of all, you know, we didn't nail it. Like we definitely didn't have the visual identity when we launched. You know, we were not a venture-backed, perfectly manicured brand when we launched. Our first box was like all black, which is so not our brand now. It doesn't need to be perfect in order to get started. But what we did do that feels like so core to what we still do now was like, you know, nail our voice. We said, hey, this is the problem. Women are four times more likely than men to say sex has been not at all pleasurable. We know that one of the main ways that people with vulvas, women experience pleasure is through external clitoral stimulation. We are designing a product that does this. And we spoke about it. Like it was literally me talking about it in a straightforward way. I'm not embarrassed to talk about it. So why should you be embarrassed to hear about it? This is what our products are going to look like. You know, we were really conscious that we wanted to make sure things didn't look scary. Things didn't look like they were trying to replace anything anatomically. And And yeah, I think that really resonated, like a straightforward conversation that's fact-based, that's science-based, but still, you know, human-centric and playful. No, I appreciate that because it seems like getting like the science behind it as well, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that also helps as well just to destigmatize it. And so, yeah. Yeah, it normalizes it. There are so many women out there who literally feel like they're the only ones who aren't having orgasms from sex, from like P and the V sex. And it's wild because, you know, I've known this information for 15 years now, but I still have the experience when I tell people like, you know, I think the most dramatic way of saying it is only 4% of women report penetration as their main route to orgasm. That means 96% of women are experiencing orgasm most of the time from including external stimulation. You are not alone. If you, you know, there's so many women out there who just want to have that simultaneous orgasm with their partner, which by the way, is totally possible, especially if you're using external stimulation simultaneously. And people feel like they're letting their partners down. Men feel like they're letting their partners down. And it's so unfortunate because it creates so much stress for people. but really just look at the science, look at the numbers. This is totally normal. And when you hear those stats, it's normalizing and it makes you feel less embarrassed and more comfortable in your body. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing broken about you. And yeah, stats are powerful. I like math. Yeah, I like math too. No, that's really helpful. And I love that it's almost also being inclusive as well, right? In terms of, you know, really, as you say, normalize sex and pleasure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's really helpful. How did you approach marketing too because i'd imagine you couldn't market on facebook and i'd love to just your approach just to marketing online We've taken many approaches and we have been shut down many a times. That's actually not as true. You know, we definitely have to have additional conversations often, but we've done a range of things. So our main way that we market it is through press, through word of mouth, through organic content. I do really believe that that is always going to be the most powerful. Like your ads will work better if your organic content is good. So we're always trying to improve our organic content and I think creating press stories 
story is is key. Our success of our Indiegogo campaign was so had so much to do with press and getting BuzzFeed and Refinery29 to write articles about us. And yeah, so that was our original strategy. A lot of people don't like to talk about sex, but they love to talk about sex. So we use that to our advantage. And then we did try a lot of funky things. So for a long time, I advertised on Facebook using my personal brand. So I would say I'm Alexander Fine. I'm running advertisements for me as the entrepreneur. And like, check out this article in the New York Times about me. Or like, thank you to the New York Times for writing an article about me. Think W Magazine, whatever article it was. And that was effective for a long time. You know, I told Facebook like, look, this advertisement's promoting me. And it was, it was, it was promoting me. And then, you know, you would go and you would read this New York Times article. And then if you still wanted to, you would go to my website and, and purchase. And it was also, yes, an effective flow for me also to get people to learn about my brand and potentially buy a vibrator. But I still, to this day, don't think I was promoting vibrators. I think I was promoting myself. Eventually, Facebook decided, after agreeing with me for several months, Facebook then decided to change their policy. And they said that the articles I was pushing people to, the articles talked about vibrators and they were no longer compliant with their advertising policy and they started shutting it down and then you know it really hurt because I felt like okay you're shutting me down like you're shutting down my voice as an entrepreneur and what I'm trying to do and like you know secondly I'm so sure about what I'm doing is good like I really do like I believe that to my core obviously like and for you to like not take my millions of dollars but to take money from other people who are promoting like false truths. I'm saying only, again, this is just like me being six. Like I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not saying anything not truthful. I'm not doing anything lewd. I'm not showing, you know, I'm not encouraging an unhealthy amount of sex in any way. Yet like, you know, you're, you're shutting me down, yet you're letting people do things that are clearly a lot more harmful and advertise false statements. Obviously, I think Facebook is trying really hard to clean up their act and it's confusing and I respect how challenging it is, but that is my truth and my story about Facebook. So that sucked. That's one way we marketed for a while. And then, you know, right now we rely on press. We rely a lot on doing education and content. We work with podcasts and partnerships. And then lastly, kind of alongside partnerships are our retail partners. Like I sell to Goop, I sell to Free People, Urban Outfitters, I sell in Nordstrom's. So Nordstrom's recently took in our brand and we sold out in a week. And that's great, great for the brand, great for our sales. But also we get press around that. You know, we get press that we were featured in Nordstrom's and some people find out about that press and still just come to my website. So it's marketing, it's advertisement and it's sales at the same time. Also because of the category, it's validating. Like when Goop or Nordstrom's says, hey, like these are wellness brands, we're gonna carry them. So wellness is a product is good for you. There's so many people who, like, you know, hearing Gwyneth Paltrow say it, makes them feel like, oh, wow, it's, it's just validating. As you say, it normalizes it then. And then it also destigmatizes it. It becomes more mainstream and pointing as well to the research, right? Pointing as well to science behind all of this. So a lot of our advertisements literally just have like statistics in them, you know? So, and lastly, I can't believe I didn't mention this, but we like to make, you know, lemonade out of our lemons. So we worked with 
the MTA for about six months preparing advertisements that they approved. Those advertisements were things like 95% of men get to where they're going while only 30% of women do. You know, stats again. And eventually the MTA decided they were like, oh, we would never work with a sexually oriented business. Meanwhile, they are not only running ads for erectile dysfunction medication and other sexual modifications, they're also running ads for breast enhancements. They're running advertisements that feature people, you know, in bed talking about threesomes. Like, I don't have a problem with any of these things, but why me? Why are you, you know, drawing the line here? And eventually, you know, we worked really hard. We tried to get some press out of being rejected. We sorted it. And then I realized, oh, the MTA is a government function. We can actually sue them. Unlike Facebook, that's a private business. The MTA actually, they have to be clear and consistent in their guidelines and they weren't being. So we are currently in litigation with the MTA. We definitely got pressed out of that. And so I could just marketing what's not working too. And that for some people has really resonated. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I appreciate you talking about all the different channels that you currently sell, as well as how you're able to also round up press around these events. But the MTA stuff, I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. Unfortunately, at first glance, it doesn't seem surprising, which is the unfortunate part sometimes. And that's why, I mean, it's great that you're able to help normalize this area and to be a wellness brand. And I really hope you win your battle against the MTA. I think we will. Awesome. Awesome. So I know we spoke about Indiegogo and how are you able to fundraise there, which is fantastic. I'd love to also talk about, I know you just raised, I believe your seed round, right? Which congratulations, that's awesome. But I would love to describe what that fundraising process was like. And yeah, just how you were able to successfully fundraise. Yeah. So I mean, I'm six years in and I just raised my seed round, right? So in some ways I feel like it was a tough process. It was also a very easy process in that this time when I went out, I really knew what I needed. I knew the right time to go out. Like We were uh, ripping it. Like, you know, our year over year numbers were strong. We were profitable. And I knew, okay, this is, you go out when things are, are going well, not when things are going badly. I had, because I had been trying to raise money for six years, essentially, I had a long list of investors that I had been in, you know, constant conversation with or sporad- you know, quarterly conversation with, which was actually great too, because I had a sense of who they were. And literally I sent out my, hey, look, I'm looking to do a round. Here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I want to use the money for. And our, our Listen Ventures, who is our lead, they came back to us in like two weeks with a term sheet, you know? So in some ways, super easy, but only because it was so hard for so long. I definitely feel like the very first accelerator I applied for, Mass Challenge. Sorry, Mass Challenge that I'm doing this to you. (laughs) Like the big thing was like, look, apply. Worst case scenario, you're going to get feedback from judges on your pitch. One of the judges, all he wrote on my pitch was, is this a joke? And Somebody else gave me thorough feedback that was very helpful, but the second judge just wrote, is this a joke? And that was all they wrote. 
And it was really tough because obviously it's not a joke. I'm not saying we can't giggle about it a little bit, but this is also a really serious thing. Like sexless marriages are harmful. Am I going back and forth? You can be in a happy sexless marriage. If that works for you, that's great. But I think that, you know, I definitely feel a stronger bond with my partner and the research does show that people who are happier and they have higher sexual satisfaction tend to have higher relationship satisfaction as well. And yeah, I would say that was probably like where the world was at first. There were definitely people who were scared of this category, felt like it was a vice, were scared that we couldn't advertise on Facebook. People weren't impressed that we were profitable and that profitable on first purchase. They only cared about top level growth. And, you know, the, the category was scary in 2014. Over the past six years, that has totally changed. People are so impressed with our bottom line numbers now and our sustainability. Simultaneously, the category has really taken off and people realize, oh, like women's health is real and like wellness as a whole has taken off. And that has really helped people realize how important their physical experiences are and therefore how important sex is when it comes to our mental well-being and our physical well-being. So it's just been cool to, to ride the wave. I like to think that Dame made a really big impact too in the way we view this category and help people I like to think we even helped our competitors raise their funds. They also helped us raise ours for sure. So I appreciate them. Yeah. So it was hard, but you know, we really were onto something and the trend kind of like the wave has come and we are riding it. No, that's great. That's great. And uh, yeah, I had Rick on the show and he's fantastic. He's really, really great. And yeah, I'm always just curious too, because in venture capital as well, there's, as of course, it's so white male dominated that I was also just curious, it's, it's a product that men might not understand, right? If that was also challenging when it came to fundraising. Certainly. I mean, also, this is like a consumer focus too. So like, you know, also just being in consumer too is like, there's more opportunities now in consumer VC. That was like a whole other aspect of what we were doing, like not a service as software. So yes, I definitely, definitely feel that there is a cohort of white male investors or just male investors in general who feel uncomfortable talking about this topic. They feel double or triply uncomfortable talking to a young female about this topic. And I would say that really, unfortunately, there was a portion of them who after the Me Too movement only felt more uncomfortable. And if I'm going to empathize with them for a moment, even though I ultimately feel like they're having the wrong reaction, there's just fear so much fear about, you know, talking about sex and people just don't know how to do it in a respectable way. And so what a lot of people do are just like, oh, I can't talk about sex. I certainly can't talk about sex with you. And like, that's it. I've certainly had investors say, well, my wife doesn't need that. You know, like women need to stop faking orgasms because you're not helping me. You're not helping you. You're not helping anybody. So there's that. But also like 35% of my purchases do come from men. And there have been plenty of male investors who completely see what we're doing, are completely capable of just looking at our numbers and realizing 
thinking there's traction, looking at the market and realizing it's a large market. They're capable of loving their partners and knowing what their partners need. So yeah, there's definitely a cohort of men who this particular topic was really hard for them. There's a cohort of women too who found this topic particularly tough. I've had female investors say, you know what? I'm really sorry, but I'm not interested in investing this category. I remember this one investor who was like, I'm just trying to make a name for myself essentially in the venture space. And like, I'm not interested in becoming pigeonholed in women's sexuality. Like investing in me almost felt like activism to them. And that's not what they were trying to do. And like, that sucks. But again, I can have empathy for that. Like it's hard out there and I want those women to succeed. And yeah, it's, sucked. It really sucked. It sucked the way the taboo really held us down institutionally when it wasn't holding us back as much in a consumer facing way. Consumers were excited to buy, but like I would literally have investors be like, I'm not going to invest, but send me that discount code, you know? <laughs> like, it's really hard being a female presenting person and raising funds. And it is harder if I was a person of color presenting too. I think the entrepreneurial spirit or the kinds of people that believe in themselves are also the kind of people that are like, okay, well, what could I have done better? How could I have made that pitch stronger? What didn't I say right? Like you're willing to take on all of the burden and believe that if I had acted differently, it would be different. Like I can make my reality, my like I'm, I'm capable of creating it. When in fact, you know, that that's totally true. But also what 3% of venture capital funds go to female, to, to women, you know, invest, you know, so like it's important to remember that too, or else you beat yourself up so much more often. I like to think it, it makes us stronger. It makes us smarter. It makes us better at doing what we're doing. There's also a lot of research that supports that. We have a higher, stronger ROI, but yeah, it's tough. And it's important to remember that there's a system and yeah. Totally, totally, totally. I completely agree. I mean, the numbers are awful. And thanks as well for just opening up and sharing some of those stories from investors. I really appreciate it, especially if there's founders um, listening. I think that your story is especially inspiring. You know, don't give up if you get feedback, which that was one pretty miserable feedback that you got. Is this a joke? from that one judge. But, you know, at the same time, you know, there are going to be some people that do say yes, hopefully. Totally. And just make revenue the whole time. I mean, like you don't need as much money as you think you need to get going. There's a cheaper way to do it. Figure it out. Just start, you know, talk to founders all the time. And I would say that's like my biggest piece of advice is, you know, make it a business as quickly as you can make it a business because you can take that to the bank. And like, I can't take a positive or negative comment from an investor to the bank. And I think ultimately, like, you know, I'm trying to change the world, but I do think that like the revenue is reflective of the value that I'm bringing to the world. No, that's a really great point. Really great point. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? There are so many good books out there. <laughs> and, you know, I think those old school, like how to win friends and influence people, which I still cringe at that name. Great book. You should read that book. It's still a really good book. <laughs> terrible name, but I totally agree with you. Also, you know, it's, and it's not a terrible, it feels terrible. It feels, but like, it, but like it's, yeah, no, no, I hear you. I yeah, hear you. yeah, hear seven you. habits are highly effective. Like these are like the books that like, if you go online, you're like seven books for like, we're like best books for business. Like those are good books. I'm going to go though ahead and say a book personally 
that really impacted me. Oh my God. I like, can't decide how nerdy I want to be right now. Like, do I go sci-fi? Like, like a lot of sci-fi books have really impacted me. And like, I'm a huge fan of Adrienne Marie Brown. She wrote Pleasure Activism. She also wrote another book called Emergent Strategy that I want to plug. Those are fantastic books for leaders in like a very different way. But I'm going to go with, um, oh my God, A Man's Search for Meaning, right? That's the title of that book, <laughs> which is actually like, maybe not the best written book, but as far as for me, I think there's just so much power in our actions. You know, the world can throw anything at you and then you have a responsibility and you have the power to respond to the world. And that really resonated with me. Also, I'm Jewish and my grandmother's a Holocaust survivor and that book is about the Holocaust and a therapist. I also wanted to be a therapist. I have my master's in clinical psychology. It's a therapist's journey through the Holocaust and his understanding of the meaning of life through that, which is about, you know, finding purpose. And he touches a little bit on this, but I would say the other purpose of life is just enjoying living, like just just appreciating the beauty of life. So I, I really, I really loved that book as well. And then as far as business books go, I would say the book that is really like just most transformed my business is Traction. But really like you don't even need Traction. There's a shorter version called What the Heck is EOS? It's just an OKR system. But hey, you need an OKR system. You need a really clear, simple way that you are measuring your traction, which is what that book's about. And for me, I'm like what that book would call as a visionary. So I tend to be like, I got a lot of ideas. I move really quickly. People don't understand what I'm talking about sometimes because I just talk so fast. And I have so many ideas. And like just creating clarity and structure for your team is the most important thing you can do in order to scale. And that book has really helped me do that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So many books you've mentioned. So I'm excited to add a few. That's great. That's great. Man Search for Meaning. We've had a couple other folks that mentioned that one. So I'm also really excited to kind of add your name to that list on the book page. And Traction. I think we had another guest also mention Traction. But these are great. This is super, super awesome. So my final question for you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received? Drink a lot of water. <laughs> That's great advice. That's great advice. But that was also me being silly. Well, not silly. Honestly, this is really good advice. You should probably drink more water. There's been so many good pieces of advice that I've received. You know, I do feel like the best piece of advice has probably been about staying true to yourself. You know, like you can't find the answers from anybody else except for you. Like I feel like people have told me like talk to a lot of people, but don't expect somebody to give you the answer you know like I always like I love to give advice so founders call me you know like I will be in the phone with you and I'll start telling you how to run your business but like I mean like listen to me but you filter it you know your business you know what you want to do and if you're not sure sit down and do nothing until you're sure I think what's hard is when people give advice it's hard to know what to accept for yourself and what maybe you shouldn't accept right? That maybe it works for them, but it might not work for you and your system. And it's always a balancing act, right? And it's always hard to know what's great advice for you, knowing that the person's trying to do the right thing, right? Ultimately, they're trying to always trying to be in a place of doing the right thing, but it's always challenging to know, all right, that works for them, but that might not actually not work for me or that works for them. And that might actually work for me. 
right? Yeah. There are very few shoulds in the world, you know? Like, what you should do, you should do what you want to do, right? Like, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like, listen to your heart. (laughs) (laughs) But no, that's a good way to phrase it, though. I've never heard someone phrase like that in terms of there's not many shoulds. There shouldn't be many shoulds in the world. I really like that concept. That's awesome. I always tell people my book title would be like, Watch where you should by <laughs> Ali Spy. Yeah, I mean, shoulds come up all the time in sex. Shoulds call like what you should do. Like just drop that. Like drop all of those judgments. There's no right way of doing it. There's your way of doing it. Stay curious. You know, those other always. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love that. I love that. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This has been so much fun. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you can tell, but I love talking. So this is fantastic for me as well. So thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. It was so great having Alex on the show. Alex, thanks again for coming on. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at AFineHuman. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Thanks again for listening, folks.